Good morning, church. For those of you who don't yet know me, I'm Tim Chiang, and I'm one of the pastoral workers here at St. Mary's Cathedral. And it's my privilege to be sharing God's word from the gospel that we have just read, uh, which is Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. Let's begin with the word of prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Father, we ask that even as we consider your word delivered to us in Matthew's gospel, help us to receive it with humble hearts. Please give us sensitive spirits that we may receive from you alone. And if anything I say this morning may distract people from hearing you, I ask, Lord, that you remove it. And we ask, O oh Lord, all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Seeing as today is also the first Sunday of Lent, uh, it's also a great opportunity for us to be thinking about what it truly means to be denying ourselves and following Jesus, right? Uh, so my sermon today is titled, True Discipleship. And it'll be three parts, uh, in three parts. If you haven't already, uh, you can, I invite you to open the outline and follow from there. Um, you would have received it in the email uh, registration for your booking, as well as a QR code outside if you haven't already. The first part is in verse 9, Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. The second part is that in verse 10, Jesus fellowships with the sinners who come to him. And last but not least, uh, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees' religiosity from verses 11 to 13. And the main takeaway message for us today is that true disciples are sinners who live for Jesus, bring other sinners to him, and are shaped by mercy. And I'd like to begin by thinking about where we are in the current pandemic, right? Cases are rising, um, people are not understandably scared, but amongst other than just the total case numbers of, that's rising, Another important indicator of how well we're doing in this pandemic is by seeing the admission rates in the ICU and ventilator usage, right? Because that's the key thing. If our healthcare system fails, the ICU systems get clogged full of COVID patients, then people with other disorders that are intensive, that need care, will not be able to get care. So we look at that metric uh, with, with closeness, right? But then again, I ask you to imagine, what would you think if all our hospitals in Malaysia refuse to accept COVID patients into the ICU. What? It's unthinkable, right? In a pandemic. Because the healthcare system is built for us to, to treat as many as they can, especially with dire uh, needs in the midst of a pandemic, right? And of course, we thank God that our Healthcare system has been doing their best. Uh, the tireless hours that men and women in the healthcare system have serviced and for their sacrifice, we thank God for all those capable people there. However, as we, even as we are two years into uh, a, a COVID pandemic, I'll say that we have been far more longer in a far more prevalent spiritual pandemic of sin, which has infected every single human being. And a similar question should be asked. What kind of spiritual hospital is the church being in the midst of this spiritual pandemic? So that's my message today, where we'll be going. And we see how Matthew sets this up. Early on in Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 to 22, Matthew outlined the high cost of following Jesus, right? That, Je that people should follow Jesus uh, alone, not for the benefits that come from it, and put him as the highest priority. And that Jesus is worthy of this high demand because of who he is. That Jesus is God. And Matthew outlined that in the past three miracles that we've been exploring over the past three weeks. Jesus rebuked the storm and everything went still. Jesus drove out the demons with the word. 
that no one else could drive out. And last week we saw how he healed a paralyzed man. And it's not just about the healing, right? It's because Jesus proclaimed forgiveness on this paralyzed man. And he proved that he could forgive by making this man walk. And that forgiveness of sin is something that only God can do. And as Jesus left the, that crowd, that scene, right, we come upon today's passage. Next, he comes to Matthew, who wrote this gospel, and picking it up in verse 9. We come to our first section, where Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Matthew is also called Levi in the other two Gospels of Matthew and Mark, right? And he's sitting at a tax, he's a tax collector and sitting at a tax booth outside of town border. What happens? You see, um, tax collectors are uh, strategically placed at entrances to the towns, right? Uh, back then, there's only one major road coming into the city, and as goods come in, they can be taxed, and then the money collected and revenue collected. And such revenue will be collected and go to Rome, the, the occupying force of that day. Now, I think in any human age, right, the tax collector has never been popular. Uh, apologies to anyone working in LHDN, right? But uh, it was given worse in that this special position was given Roman enforcers to jaga the money, so to speak, right? Roman enforcers to, to take care of the coin. So tax collectors um, had Roman guards behind the back soldiers to make sure that people paid up, right? And no one would rob them. And such positions of tax collectors was offered to the highest bidder. See, Rome wouldn't care. They'd say, okay, I, just, I need someone to do this for me, right? All right, I'll just give the job to the highest bidder. So people will bid maybe even beyond their means to get the job. And once they got the job, what they would do is to recoup back the cost of that what, initial payment to Rome, they will overcharge in the taxes on the collections, right? It makes sense, doesn't it, right? So to recoup that cost, they overcharge, and Rome doesn't care. Because as long as Rome gets its money, what you do with the local populace, they don't bother, right? And a very human tendency is, once you've recouped your cost, why stop there? Why not just enrich yourself a bit more? Collect a bit more, continue collecting more. So tax collectors, put in hindsight, were not just people who stood with the oppressing enemy, who did not worship the God that they worship. They exploited and oppressed their own countrymen. So they are rightfully hated, right? Now, who, how is Matthew uh, as a tax collector? Now, we're not told. We're not given any backstory. Why would suddenly Jesus approach this tax collector and say, follow me and you'll follow? We're not told why. All we are told that Jesus tells him two words, follow me, and he does. But what we can know, given that context I've just given you, is that for Matthew, leaving that tax booth meant leaving everything of his old life. Some of Jesus' disciples were fishermen, right? After that, they actually went back to fishing. They could do that. For Matthew, there is no way he could go back. There's no way he could go back. And in fact, once he left, someone else will replace him, right? There's nothing left for him there. In fact, to become a tax collector, he left his family, he left honor, he left society, right? He became a, a, a pariah of society, to become a tax collector. And now he's leaving a tax collector. He's leaving the security the Romans can give. He's leaving the comforts and the wealth that position gives. And he's following Jesus. Remember that true disciples are sinners who live for Jesus. 
right? And our first principle today, we learn that true, true disciples are sinners who turn to Jesus and live for him. I like to think that Matthew recognized his need for Jesus. You see, in, in many of the accounts in other Gospels, the healing of the paralytic where Jesus forgives sins is very closely linked to the calling of Matthew or Levi. And I like to think that word spread from the account of the healing of the paralytic that Jesus claimed to forgive sins, to pronounce the forgiveness of sins. And what must it sound like to someone like Matthew with his track record? You see, Matthew took one good look at his life, his job, the trappings of wealth, the security of Rome, and he saw that all these things left him spiritually dead. As I mentioned, sin is a spiritual pandemic that infects every single human alive today. All of us, none of us exempt. And it's a spiritual disease whose symptoms include selfishness, pride, anger, greed, and the list goes on. And if these are the symptoms, the main cause of this disease is a rejection of God being cut away and turning away from God's goodness, God's life and his beauty and his love and trying to substitute what we were meant to get from God alone, the life we were meant to get from God alone with things that we find in this earth. We try to, to satisfy ourselves with stuff, with our careers, with family, with money and it doesn't work. I mean, getting a new phone or a new car or a new house feels good for a while until it doesn't. And then it, that those things just become yet another thing that we have and we forget about, isn't it? But not only is it unsatisfying, but there's a graver, far greater consequence of turning away from God. Because rejecting God means we're being cut off from His life and His love and His beauty and receiving His wrath. Now, when we hear of atrocities being committed Right? against innocent victims, untold horrors that's going on in the war right now in Europe, we rightfully get angry at the people who are victimizing innocent civilians, right? And we wish to see them punished, be brought to justice. We wish that it stops. Likewise, because God is good, He is rightfully wrathful at the destruction that sin caused, the hurt that it caused, right? The corruption that it caused. And He rightfully wants to judge its perpetrators. Now, one problem for us is that we are the perpetrators of our own sin. And we don't just sin against ourselves, don't we? We sin against those around us. And our rejection of God, our sins only serve to spread the chaos and the destruction and the brokenness of God's once good creation. Like Matthew, we stand before God by virtue of our own sin, guilty, infected by this spiritually fatal disease. And like Matthew, we need to be healed, to be forgiven of our sins. We can only be found by turning away from living for this world and turning to Christ. You see, at this point of the story, Matthew didn't know it yet, right? But Jesus came into our world, being fully God, took on our humanity, became fully human and lived a sinless life so that he could take on our sin in its fullest extent on the death, on his death on the cross, the death that our sin required. And in exchange, he gave us his sinlessness, his righteousness, so that 
in Him we can stand before God as if we did we never sinned. And not only that, but when Jesus rose again from the dead three days later in resurrection glory, all of us who believe in Him will be raised in the same way. That death, for those of us who are in Christ, is no longer something to be feared because it is merely a gateway to greater glory with God. Death has a way of nullifying everything in this world, doesn't it? We can't take our money, our possessions with us beyond death. We can't bring our loved ones with us beyond death. All the life experiences that you have accumulated food you've eaten, the travel places you've been, whatever, however nice it was, will cease with death. And it makes it all meaningless. For most of us, death would also mean that for the next, we won't be remembered past three generations, that we'll be forgotten. And for, but the worst than that is this, death is not the end. That after death, we stand before God who created us to give an answer for how we lived in this life. If we've lived for things that won't last, or have we heeded his call to respond to him? Now, if this is you today, and if you're listening to me, uh, please understand I, I don't like being mean. <laughs> I'm not saying this just to be mean or, or judgmental, right? Uh, I'm saying this because I was in the very same boat as you. I know how hopeless it is, uh, my own sins, to, to try to solve it without Jesus that without Jesus, we have no hope before a holy God. So if that is you, would you please consider turning to Jesus and following him? And we would love to chat with you. If you have any, any questions regarding this, right? Uh, we have a link later um, that we put in announcements, stmarys.my slash connect. We would love to hear from you. But for, for the rest of us who have tasted the sweetness of life with Jesus, how do we then respond? And that's what we see in our next verse, next section, right? Where Jesus fellowships with the sinners who came to him. Verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So, what's this word reclining, right? So, in Middle Eastern culture, they didn't have tables and chairs for a big dinner, right? For them, the banquet was served at low tables with cushions and everyone's reclining at the side. And everyone, it's a very informal kind of gathering, uh, uh, one of fellowship, of uh, social gathering, right? Of acceptance, of, of equal standing, right? When people are reclining together. And that's what this, this, this context that we're missing for us in the 20th century. You see, we see Matthew being so overjoyed at the life that he has following Christ that the first thing he does is to throw a lavish party at his house. He's not living for money anymore. He's not hoarding it anymore, right? So spare no expense. Bring people in. And, and we see that he invites all his former associates to meet Jesus, other tax collectors and sinners. Now, we're not given detail as to who these sinners could be, right? But very likely, they are, I mean, given that they're just given a general title, sinners, right? Uh, it could be the, the fringes of society, the other social pariahs that hung around with tax collectors, uh, thugs, thieves, maybe even pimps as well. And these were the type of people, the, the crowd, that reclined with fellowship to Jesus and his disciples. They were invited to come in, that they may know Jesus. And I think it's not too far to, to, to think that Matthew hoped that they would respond as he did and see the fruitlessness, the pointlessness of their life, and live for Christ. 
True disciples are sinners who live for Jesus and bring other sinners to him. And we see our next principle, which is true disciples are sinners who enjoy, enjoy bring other sinners to Jesus. When we have fully understood how we've been saved by his grace, how amazingly unworthy we are, and how amazing God's love is for us, the last thing we should do is to keep it to ourselves. Maybe for some of us here, the moment when we first discovered the sweetness of salvation was so long ago. Perhaps some of us have even lost our zeal in sharing uh, the gospel because of failures or because of doubts that crept in. What if I share the gospel and, and I spoil the friendship or the relationship I have with my neighbours or colleagues? What if um, the people who know me best see my weaknesses and my failings and get the wrong impression of Christ? What if, when I share the gospel, I, I make such a mess of it that I just drive them further away from Christ? And to all those, right, I say, take a deep breath. And remember, we are just called to be witnesses, not saviors. Jesus is a savior they need. We are only called to remember what Christ has done for us, how we have experienced his benefits and tell others of the benefits we've received from Christ, of the joys it means to be forgiven, of the wonderfulness of his fellowship when we're going through pain. That's all we have to do. Talk about what Christ has done in your life. We are all spiritually dead sinners who have found this life in Jesus. And we are to, we are to seek to point all similar, similarly dead people, spiritually dead, to him as well. To keep that cure to ourselves is being selfish, isn't it? Can you imagine if we have a nation in the world today that discovered a cure that could once for all end the pandemic and have enough quantities for all 7 billion people in the world today, but they kept it to themselves? What will we, the rest of the world, think of such a nation? Right? we'll be rightfully incensed. How could you be so selfish? And in the next section, we'll see how this selfishness plays out in the, people, in, in the example of the Pharisees. We see in the last section that Jesus rebukes the Pharisees' religiosity. And I'll explain what I mean by this word. All right? So the Pharisees saw this. They said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat and, with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard of it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've come to call the righteous. I've not called, come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the Pharisees were the most conservative religious sect in Judaism in Jesus' day, right? They were the ones that fasted the most, prayed the most, knew the most Bible. From all external appearances, they were the most holy, right, of orders in Judaism that day. But Jesus' reply revealed, to, revealed, both the, the, revealed the hypocrisy of their external religion. And that's what I mean by religiosity, that their religion, for all its trappings, is only external. And in his analogy of a sick needing a doctor, he showed two things, right? The first is that Jesus, in this fellowship with tax collectors and sinners, is not condoning sin, just as a doctor would not want his patient to remain sick. A doctor wants to heal his patient. Likewise, Jesus is saying, these people need to be healed of their sin by coming to me. Sin is not okay. It's not okay to remain in sin. 
But then where is the cure? The cure is to Jesus. And the next thing is that Jesus is condemning the Pharisees' pride. The people who thought that they were healthy, right? And they looked down their nose at others who were being sick. Ugh, sick person, right? Rather than pointing them to get help. The error of the Pharisees was that they, thought, they saw themselves as the gatekeepers of righteousness, the religious standard that which everyone should follow. Pray like me, fast like me, do this like me, right? Their, their, their piety, their ability to follow the rules became a point of pride. To look down on others and make themselves feel better. Brothers and sisters, this is ungodly, this is evil, and this is wicked. When Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, he did not mean that the Pharisees were healthy. Rather, that they were sick and dying, but wouldn't admit that they needed help. Uh, one, the worst thing to try to do is to try to heal a sick person who doesn't want to be healed. Right? And here, Jesus quotes Hosea 6 specifically which was a proclaimed uh, a prophecy which rebuked God's people, who at that point, they kept all the religious observances. They, they still kept temple worship. They were still sacrificing. The priests were still doing their function and people were still offering. But in Hosea 6, we've read that their hearts were straight far, far, far from God. And that's what the Pharisees had done. That God desires mercy, compassion, Love. And this is a reflection of God's own character, right? Not just mercy for mercy's sake, but mercy because God is merciful. He delights in those who would show His love to the people around them. That's what God desires. Not sacrifice, external religious observances. Now, at the risk of sounding a bit um, of, of, of offending, external religious observances like coming to church, even partaking communion, or even fasting for Lent, if we do all those things without allowing them to shape us to love God more, we are no better than the Pharisees. Those are good things that we should be doing. But if we, don't, if we do them without allowing ourselves to love, pointing, pointing them to love Jesus more, there's no point doing them. True disciples are sinners who live for Jesus, bring other sinners to him, and are shaped by mercy. True disciples, uh, the last principle is that true disciples are sinners shaped by God's mercy to be merciful to others. As I mentioned, all of us are spiritually sick, and we need the cure that only Jesus can give. That the church should be the spiritual hospital where the sick go to receive Jesus, the cure they need. Now, in the pandemic, the emergency departments, the EDs, right, they're full to the brim, uh, they're messy, they're noisy, they're chaotic, right? And they're, they're dirty because that's where the sick and the dying go to get healed, right? No one expects it to be neat and tidy in the ED, but they go because they're desperate. Now, if that's the case for a physical hospital, how should the church be? If the, if the church is a place where people are cured of their sin, is the church a place where people can feel safe to acknowledge their sin, their need for God? Is the church a place where people can receive healing from their sin? If the church truly is a hospital where the spiritually sick gather, maybe we should not be surprised 
if there's sinners amongst us, because we're all sinners, works in progress, isn't it? And we should stop expecting everyone to be so perfect, to be in order and not have any feelings at all. Heaven forbid. Why is it so often the church feels like the, 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 the last place that you will find mercy, that you will find compassion when you fall? Now, I'm not saying that the church should tolerate sin to the point of accepting it. Remember, I said that the, like the, the, the sickness needs to be cured by the doctor, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that we should tolerate sin or allow it to fester. But what I am saying is that sin, when it's remained hidden, undiagnosed and unacknowledged cannot be healed and it will only fester and grow worse in our lives. So can we, the church, be known as a safe place for, for sinners to come and receive what their sin needs most, Jesus? Can we be known as a trustworthy community of people when people open up to us or when we open up to one another uh, about where we are weak and in need of God? so that others can play their role to encourage us, to point us back on the right track? Can we be a place where we stop pretending to be so perfect, stop pretending to be in control when our lives are falling out of control around us and allow others to come in to love us enough to point us to Christ? My hope is that we can be so shaped by God's mercy, so transformed by His grace, that our weaknesses and our failings become spotlights to how awesome God is. Look, I'm a horrible person and I struggle with this sin, but isn't it amazing that God loves me all the same? That our failings are opportunities to point people to how gracious and amazing God's love is. There's no way we can earn it. And there's no need to earn His love because He has already lavished it upon us in Jesus. True disciples are sinners who live for Jesus bring other sinners to him and are shaped by his mercy. Let us pray. Father, forgive us for all the times that we have taken your love for granted. Forgive us if we have shied away from sharing all that you've done for us to the ones in our lives who need to hear it the most. Help us, O oh Lord, to be merciful to others and to ourselves so that we always remember how you are merciful to us. We can't do this without your help, Father. And we ask you that you help us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.